Hi, everyone, and welcome to FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview retired supervisory special agent Harry Garcia. Harry served in the FBI for 22 years. He was an accountant and a former IRS revenue agent. And throughout most of his bureau career, he worked complex financial investigations. He is interviewed about a multi-agency Southwest Border Task Force targeting corrupt border inspectors working out of the Calexico Border Station, which is on the border of California and Mexico. The case was very successful. Not only did it result in the seizure of $1.2 million in cash, the two main corrupt inspectors they were looking at received sentences of life imprisonment and 27 years in prison. Now, if you are listening to this episode while you're exercising or doing your daily chores or driving, I want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. The podcast is doing very well. And uh, I just want to make sure that all of the listeners know how much I appreciate your support. And please keep the emails and tweets coming my way. I respond to every one of them. So here's the show. And we'll talk a little bit more after the interview's over. Hi, everyone. I am excited to introduce you to my guest today, Harry Garcia. Hi, Harry. Hi. So I know that we talked about many of the different cases that you worked during your career, but uh, we kind of decided on a particular one that has to do with greed and corruption, my favorite subjects. Can you tease us a little bit? What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about a, a major initiative that, uh, that I led for the FBI in San Diego, what I was assigned to the San Diego Division, where we uncover a cesspool of corruption among immigration, customs, and border patrol. Can't wait to get into that. But before we do, I'd like to learn a little bit about you so that we have an understanding of the expertise, the experience that you brought with you into this case. Tell me a little bit about you. What were you doing before you joined the FBI, and when did you join the FBI? Okay, before joining joining the FBI, I spent, uh, following my graduation from Arizona State University with an accounting degree, I worked with, for the IRS as a internal revenue agent in which I basically audited uh, corporate tax returns in an effort to, to identify the tax liability. So that was uh, three and a half years uh, before, my, uh, before I entered with the Bureau uh, in January 5th, 1981. What was your first office? My first office was uh, the Phoenix and the Tucson RA out of Phoenix. And what did you work there? I worked uh, multiple uh, multiple cases, uh, uh, reactive, um, some white collar, and some uh, work in the Indian Reservation. All right. So you worked a variety of cases as an accountant coming out of the IRS. Was that uh, different for you? Yes. Uh, the uh, you know the criminal reactive work, uh, working bank robberies. That was uh, a that was uh, something different for me, but exciting at the same time. Something new for me to learn. 
And so how long were you in that uh, small resident agency? I was there for about 15 months. And then from there, I was transferred to uh, Puerto Rico, San Juan Division. Okay. So I take it that you speak uh, fluent Spanish. Uh, yes, I do. So they wanted to take advantage of that language skill. Uh, yes, yes, they did. And how long were you in uh, Puerto Rico? Five years. Now, my understanding is that when you do, uh, when you are assigned to Puerto Rico, when it is time for you to be transferred, you almost get a, like an office of preference. You let them know where you'd like to go, and they try their very best to assign you there. Is that the case? Yeah, that was the case. In fact, I was uh, in a pilot program that if you stay five years, the bureau would try to accommodate you. They would ask you to give, give them three offices, rank them in, in and, 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 you know, selecting the first office where you wanted to go and then, you know, give them two more offices. And in my case, I was lucky enough to, uh, uh, to get my office of preference, San Diego. San Diego. Now, you're, you're not originally from San Diego, or, or are you? No, no I'm not. Uh, but I'm originally from California, Los Angeles area. Okay. So um, now you're going back to uh, Southern California, and I take it you're pretty excited about that. Yes, I was very, very happy. Okay, now you've worked, I'm sure, a variety of uh, different cases now, like you mentioned, you know, criminal cases, you know, in your different offices. Now, when you get to San Diego, are you working now utilizing your accounting degree and your IRS background? Yes, I am. Okay, so what squad are you on? I was in a white-collar crime squad. So that's when you... Uh, were introduced to this case. Was this some type of an ongoing corruption case, or was this, I think you mentioned that it was an initiative. Yes, it was an initiative, and so it was, uh, it was a new case that was developed in its infancy, and you know, that entailed, of course, developing sources. This corruption case was a bureau initiative, and a uh, <clears throat> U.S. Attorney, uh, United States Attorney's Office initiative, based on the amount of uh, allegations that have surfaced regarding um, corrupt activities at the port of entries between San Diego and Calexico, California. And so the, the, you know, the FBI was tasked with initiating this task force, multi-agency task force. The different agencies included the Department of Justice, OIG, Office of Inspector General, Customs Internal Affairs, uh, IRS, uh, the FBI, and some local agencies, but, and, and DEA, with some small presence. So each agency provided one or two representatives to be present on this task force? Yes, and mostly it was led by, you know, by the FBI, OIG, and, 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 and Customs Internal Affairs. Were you all working together at a particular location? Uh, we set up uh, what was called a war room at the United States Attorney's Office, and that's where we merge and we work together from that office. Now, I understand in many of these initiatives, and you said that, that you did have some initial allegations, that what allows a task force to begin on such a huge undertaking uh, is the presence of cooperating witnesses or informants. Was that the case in this uh, investigation? Uh, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you knew when you started the initiative, what kind of information did you have, and then what you were looking to gather as evidence? Well, we had uh, information that was coming from our 
you know, sister agency, the OIG, the DOJ OIG, who had the oversight over immigration, uh, they had several uh, several complaints, anonymous callers, and all this information had been kind of become stale. So that was one of the reasons why we came in and formed the task force to try to get corroboration on those allegations. And some some of that corroboration started to come or started to filter through wiretaps that DEA had ongoing, and also through uh, identifying, you know, uh, talking to people that had been arrested at the border. For instance, people that were arrested with shoeboxes full of cash. And, and so those were the kind of persons that we flipped to get information, to gather information, to basically get, get enough uh, what we call predication that, you know, that we had uh, corrupt inspectors aiding the drug you know, the, the Mexican drug trafficking organizations at the time, including some of the major ones. They were allowing cocaine hidden in, in trunks to come across in exchange for uh, for payouts or, or for bribes. All right. So that's that's the main allegation that you were looking at. And that's why this uh, the DEA is also involved in this particular investigation. Correct. I mean, the, the, the DEA was feeding us uh, relevant information that, were, that was coming out of wiretaps that they had ongoing on, 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 on drug traffickers. Okay, so what were they hearing on the wiretaps? What were the specific allegations that you were getting? Some of the allegations were getting, you know, and again, you know, traffickers uh, speaking code, but we were getting allegations that they had people at the port that were facilitating you know, the entry of the uh, of the drugs in this case mostly cocaine and so that 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 kind of information from the wiretaps was the one that we were obtaining from the DEA and uh, you know based on that based on that information we were focusing on the specific port of entry that they were talking about because there were there were a couple of major port of entries in in Southern California uh, one of them which became the our main focus was Calexico which is out in the middle of the desert. It's about 120 miles east of San Diego. Could you describe the Porter Entry? Is it like we see on movies and on TV, where there, it's almost like a toll booth kind of thing and people are lined up with their cars coming through? Uh, yes, pretty much. I think if you've seen, uh, seen some of the movies, uh, mostly uh, in Tijuana. Tijuana is one of the largest port of entries. You know, all, the, all the lanes with you know, cars uh, basically park bumper to bumper to come in into the uh, into the US that is very similar in Calexico although Calexico is a much smaller port of entry but because there was less focus on Calexico it became a hotspot for traffickers to use because you know they knew that the chances of being uncovered detected were less than you know going through Tijuana all right so as a trafficker is come a trafficker is coming through this port of entry. Are they looking for a particular inspector? Are they told, go through this lane at this time, and this inspector will look the other way? How do they know that they're going to be able to get their drugs through this particular uh, port of entry at this particular time? Yeah, that, that's a good question, Yari. They, what they did is they had what was called like a gatekeeper. They had a person near near the border who was kind of you know transmitting information to the inspector and what they would use a lot of times is feed the information either via cell phone to the inspector 
And at the same time, they would also place a piece of paper on the windshield, you know, with some kind of some kind of a code that would alert inspector that that was a vehicle that needed to get across. But they they did, I would say, over 90% of the time, you know, they had a uh, uh, they they used the word gatekeeper, meaning someone that was actually on foot, you know, near near the port of entry, uh, communicating in in various ways with inspector. And these inspectors, how many were you targeting uh, initially, and how were you able to identify them? Or was that part of the investigation to try to identify, you know, who was uh, involved in this uh, corruption scheme? Yeah, initially we had we had two uh, two inspectors, immigration inspectors, and some of that information that I could get was a combination of of uh, information from DEA wiretaps, but also from people uh, to meal, if you want to call them meals, uh, that were coming in, you know, through the port of entry and were uh, detained, and they, you know, they uncovered that they had, you know, cash. And for this case, the common denominator was $20 bills. That's what they used, the traffickers used, uh, to bring across and to make the bribe payments to the inspectors, and I, I will, I will get into that later when we discover a, a large amount of uh, money on a search warrant, 1.2 million that was all in twenties. Wow. Uh, but wow. to go back and answer your question, Jerry, is um, a couple of these people that we flipped uh, were very helpful in in giving us information and helping us identify the first couple of inspectors. Once once we identified uh, the inspector, then. My focus became, or our focus became, on the financial aspects. Basically, as part of the war room, we had a, a we started a grand jury investigation, and that grand jury investigation uh, allowed us to uh, issue subpoenas for all the financial information on on these inspectors that we already had in, enough predication suspicion that they were they were taking bribes. Uh, however, to to prove that someone is getting is getting money. It's not that easy to catch somebody in the act. Very difficult. So what do we do? We start to do a financial investigation on them, basically focusing on their expenses and 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 looking at what they were expending and and doing a, a network analysis to show that they they have more expenses than their income allow for that. So, for instance, we had an inspector that was had a salary of with overtime of forty thousand a year at the time. This is twenty years ago, and we were starting to show that they had bought a Lexus, that they had bought uh, other things, uh, and part of that gave us evidence of probable cause to to do search warrants, execute search warrants in their homes. And those search warrants, uh, Jerry, were very crucial to our success success of this case because uh, we were able to to gather evidence in the form of uh, financial evidence to show not only that they were living above beyond their means, but we also found, you know, cash in some of their homes. And one of the inspectors, we found cash in plastic bags taped to the cover of the toilets. Now, if that doesn't look suspicious, I don't know what does. <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, that's how this case really broke. And then, you know, we started to basically flip some of these inspectors who gave us information on others and from two we we went to six personally six all of them in in Calexico, California 
you know, we have one in, in Tijuana, but that was kind of an isolated an isolated case, you know, that I worked from information from a wiretap. But one of the biggest efforts in this investigation was the financial aspect. And and that's what that's what basically gave us compelling evidence, you know, at trial time showing that here's these inspectors making at most forty thousand with overtime and we were able to show that they had spent triple that amount. So wouldn't that other money come from? And and that's that was that was basically the indirect way of for the US Attorney's Office and the prosecutor to show the jury. That's pretty fascinating. Now my my question to you is were they in collusion? I mean did they did you said that you started out with two and then it grew to six. Did they all know that they were taking bribes? Were they aware of what was going on? We had we had a, a what well, we identify here, and I'm just going to go to the second major uh, case that we co-named Poor Sweeper. They used a broker. The drug traffickers used a person that they went through, and this broker, in this case, uh, Ernie Garcia, was one of the key players on our second major investigation, co-named Poor Sweeper. So he was a, he was a conduit between the drug traffickers and inspectors. So some of the inspectors did not know which other inspectors were, were involved in this, because the key denominator here was uh, uh, Mr. Ernie Garcia. Now, was Ernie an employee of the port of entry? He was a, he was a uh, immigration inspector, but when we started this investigation, he had resigned, and now was basically <laughs> had become a, a full-time, a full-time, if you want to call it, uh, uh, a full-time drug trafficker because he was basically working for the drug trafficking organization and he, he was he was charging them uh, and again this is based on uh, information from sources that he was charging the drug traffickers you know anywhere from 50 to 100 grand per loads and he then was the one that would um, filter that money to the inspectors that he had in his pocket so he was wow. he was like a broker and and uh, jumping a little bit ahead here, when we culminated this investigation, uh, which was a major takedown, we found that Mr. Garcia had stored you know, millions of dollars in briefcases. Well, we had that information. When we executed a search warrant at his aunt's house in Lakewood, California, you know, near L.A., we found approximately 12 briefcases with $20 bills in them. And between that and a couple of other briefcases we found in Calexico at another residence, you know, it was a total of $1.2 million in $20 bills. So he was taking in more money than he could spend, or at least spend legitimately yeah, he, without having people look at him. So he just had to store the money. Correct. And this is all we found. I mean, we, you know, you know there was information that he had, a, that he had collected millions, you know. I, so we don't know if there was other stashes that we never found, but he... Uh, he was uh, he was eventually you know convicted and given almost 30 years in prison. What happened afterwards, uh, I don't know if he uh, you know he might have become a uh, you know a cooperator for the U.S. Attorney's Office. That I don't know, Jerry, uh, because once I fin- once I culminated this investigation, there was two trials. Each lasted almost two months. So the second trial, which involved the main focus, was Mr. Ernie Garcia. That second trial ended in late 1996, and of course, you know, in 1997, uh, I, I left, I departed the San Diego Division and, and went to uh, Liga Bogota. But uh, 
it was a high-profile case. Like I said, not only did we did we uh, seize all this money, but there was also seizures of you know vehicles and a couple of homes. I mean, homes that were not really worth them. But but again, it was it was uh, it was a very high-profile case. So the other inspectors. What kind of time did are, are those the trials that you were talking about, and what kind of time did they eventually receive? The other inspectors um, and some of them cooperated, but uh, they all received an average of uh, you know twenty twenty years plus. The only two that received uh, more than thirty years was Mr. Garcia, and, and there was another person by the name of Rafael Ayala, who who was another broker. Similar to Mr. Garcia, I mean, I just basically, uh, you know, explaining explaining the one case that I that I led from beginning to end. I participated on the on, on another major case, which uh, also involved similar events, in which a broker, Mr. Rafael Ayala, was the conduit between the inspectors and the traffickers, and he received life life in prison. Oh, really? Now, why was that? Why you was know, he? I, that's a good question. I, I don't know if that's before they changed the uh, uh, the mandatory sentencing, but but again, I think a lot of it had to do with his with his uh, embalming with the, uh, with drug traffickers and and also in in his laundering activities. You know, which which uh, you know he he was heavily involved in laundering money for the drug traffickers in the U.S. in terms of you know in terms of. Uh, you know, uh, real estate and and even some businesses. But uh, to answer your question, uh, I think there was a change in, in the sentencing guidelines at that period of time because I think afterwards there was, I don't think there was any any life imprisonment sentencing after that that I know of. I have two questions um, that I can think of right now. When When you first started talking, you talked about boxes of cash, um, could you tell us a little bit more about that? And was that something where someone was coming across the border, they had cash, it was confiscated, and then it kind of disappeared? No, that, it, those were two boxes. Uh, just to, to be, clear, be clear, in which um, in which officials at the at the port of entry, uh, you know, found the cash along with some some drugs. And this this were this were people that were considered mules, uh, you know, by the DEA. But there were people that were helpful to us because some of this cash, which was seized by, uh, it was seized by a DEA as part of their, their investigation, was was helpful to our overall investigation because you know it, sh- it showed it showed that that they were bringing cash from from Mexico in twenty dollar bills, twenty dollar denominations, and 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 one of the persons that we that we interviewed linked that became a CW. Um, was able to help us, uh, you know, with collecting, you know, some of the evidence in this case. And that money that was coming in was money that they were using to deliver to point of contacts in the U.S. for, you know, for whatever, including in, in, including payments, you know, the bribe payments to, to inspectors. And like I said, uh, Jerry, the, the, the common denominator there was, uh, and I get it, is the $20 bills, um, which uh, which was was a crucial link in the, in this case. All right. So you have evidence of drug traffickers bringing in or are being arrested with two boxes of twenty dollar bills, and then later on you find these briefcases that the inspector and the um, go between uh, have 
of $20 bills. Correct. Now, my other question is, whenever you hear about uh, drug trafficking, you know, it's always portrayed as a very violent uh, activity. Um, wh- did you see violence in this? Were there, um, you know, people that were uh, killed or murdered in this particular case because of the trafficking activity? I do not. I do not, uh, Jerry. Not, not, uh, not firsthand. I think, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the DEA was focusing on, on the Mexican organizations, including the Felix Arellano, which was one of the main ones. And I know there was, I mean, I overheard there were killings in Mexico, but anything that, that I witnessed or that was a result of our investigation, no. Okay. So basically, um, the task force side of it dealt with the American citizens, the inspectors that were uh, involved in accepting the bribes. Correct. And DEA handled the actual drug trafficking part of, uh, of this case. Yours is more of an, an offshoot of their drug investigation. Correct. It's still pretty fascinating that uh, inspectors, knowing you know, how serious uh, tr- drug trafficking and, and, and bringing cash over, what the serious consequences could be, you know, still put their freedom on the line to participate, you know, for greed. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's what it boiled down to, for greed. Now, what kind of things were put into place? Maybe you're not aware of this, but were there, were there anything, any initiatives put into place to prevent or to discourage or to deter inspectors from being involved in uh, accepting bribes for looking the other way? Uh, you know, the one thing I, I, I could say, uh, and again, I'm, I'm going back to Calexico. Yes, Calexico is, uh, I, I would call it kind of a dormant, uh, isolated city that is heavily populated with people from Mexico. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that we found as part of this investigation is that most of these inspectors have families in Mexico, you know, and, uh, and I think that was one of the things that made them vulnerable to this type of uh, activities, corrupt activities. And I know what was discussed at the end with the prosecutor or the prosecutors that work on this case and with the other agencies, especially the, uh, the OIG that at the time, this is, uh, again, way before Homeland Security, we're talking about when immigration and customs were two separate agencies. Um, the OIG that had the internal oversight of immigration and customs internal affairs, what was discussed is, is that they needed to uh, have a, a more ro- robust screening of new employees coming to be inspectors and, and maybe to look at more at their connections uh, and their family ties in Mexico. I think in, in answering your question, um, that was one of the one of the risks, one of the vulnerabilities that uh, that that we saw uh, as part of this investigation. All the inspectors that were convicted, unfortunately, were uh, you know of, of Mexican descent and have family on the other side of the border. That's pretty interesting. I would love to you know find out you know what's going on now as far as policing the border uh, inspectors. Yeah, I, I know I know the San Diego division. You know, this is after I left, and and I don't know, uh, I don't know what um, what are the major cases you know they, they uncover. I mean, I was there for the infancy of this the initiative that started all this border corruption, but I know they form a, a squad, a border corruption squad, a year or so after I left San Diego. Okay, 
Now, I would think that it would be very difficult to totally eliminate the possibility because there's always going to be that temptation. I mean, nowadays, when you were working this case, um, it was just a matter of illegal drugs coming through. But, of course, we know the security uh, exposure is far beyond that now. Yeah, that's correct. Now now there's different and uh, more... Um, what we call it, there's more delicate uh, issues that, uh, that the U.S. and that the U.S. Attorney's Office and that the Bureau has to, you know, has to worry about at the border, you know, yeah. with all this, with ISIS, ISIS and all this that's going on around, around us. It's pretty scary, you know, just to think about, you know, how much we depend on the inspectors and the gatekeepers at the borders to make sure that we're safe. And there's a question about their uh, integrity, their greed. It, that's a pretty frightening prospect. Yes, yes, it is. And like I said, if, you know, if, if, they're, if they're compromising their official duties in return for greed, then, you know, they're putting a lot of people here in this country at risk. Yes. So now you mentioned, and I was really fascinated by this, you mentioned that you left San Diego and you, you went to Bogota, Colombia? Yeah, that's correct. I went there um, as, a, as an alien, assistant legal attaché for two years. Now, that sounds dangerous to me. Not, you know, I, I had mentioned about the, you know, the violent possibility of drug trafficking but now you're going to one of you know the known drug trafficking uh, areas of, uh, of of South America is that the type of work that you did there uh, n- uh, no Jerry when I when I uh, went there in <clears throat> June of 1997 at that time drugs was not really their major issue because mr. Pablo Escobar was a kingpin. He had been killed, or he was killed, I believe, in early '93. So a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the risk and dangers of, of drug trafficking had kind of subsided. The issue that was going on there at the time was the FARC, and the FARC uh, was a major terrorist group that was kidnapping individuals for for economical reasons. So the bureau's main mission at the time was to ensure the uh, if you want to call it the the release, the safe release of hostages, and, and that became kind of my major uh, focus initiative while I was there in Colombia. Although the, I did support the FBI divisions in the U.S. on other cases, from white collar to to other type of, other type of cases, or getting fugitives back into the U.S. But uh, again, going back to the FARC, that was the the main risk that we faced. In fact, there was. Could you spell that? Yes, is F. A R C, all in capital letters, FARC. And is that an acronym for something? Yeah, it's an acronym for. Uh, it's all in Spanish, so I mean, if you want me, I can spell it. I'm just trying to trying to remember. Uh, it's called Fuerzas Armadas Colombianas. It's a group. I mean, it's a, it's a well-known group. The organization has been dismantled. Uh, operations have been disrupted. But um, if you um, if you look up FARC, F-A-R-C, I mean, it's kind of hard for me to, to they're like uh, Armed Forces of Colombia. It's really the acronym. You know, I'm trying to give you a quick translation in English. But uh, they have been around for over 40 years. 
And there are major risks that has faced Colombia, even through the present. In fact, at the present time, they're trying to finalize a peace settlement to get this group to turn over all the weapons and all that and, and you know, come back and live like normal human beings. In a, but it, it, it is a tough, it's been a, a, a great challenge for Colombia. So they're kind of an anti-government group. Um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, trying to overthrow the Colombian government. Yeah, pretty much. And at the time, you know, 20 years ago, uh, they had they had a huge control in certain sectors of Colombia. So those sectors, you know, you were you were basically, uh, if you, if you went in there, I mean, you're on the risk num- number one that not only were you going to be kidnapped, but you were going to be executed. Ooh. And when I was at the embassy between '97 and '99, we were heavily restricted on where we could go around the country. Uh, but again, I went there. I mean, Bogota, Colombia is a beautiful city. It's a beautiful country. Uh, they're doing very well now. But 20 years ago, when I was there, uh, it was uh, it was still a dangerous uh, area. Mm. So, what did you do after uh, you left Colombia? I was transferred to the Los Angeles Division as a supervisor, and I supervised an organized crime drug squad in the Long Beach RA for three and a half years, almost four years, until 9-11. And then post 9-11, when the focus of the Bureau became uh, the terrorism aspect, um, I was was assigned to the headquarters office in Los Angeles to supervise our computer response team, the CART team, as it's called. And that's what I did uh, my final year and a half before I retired. Now, that's one of the things that uh, I want to you know, get somebody on to, to talk a little bit more about uh, you know, CART and ERT and, and many of those evidence-gathering entities that the FBI has. So I'm, I'm sure that was uh, pretty interesting for you. Yes, it was. Uh, and like I said, my, uh, I'm not a computer person or a computer expert, but the focus at the time was because of the backlog of cases that needed, that needed to be indicted. We were waiting to collect that digital evidence. The, uh, the ADIC at the time thought that um, with my experience as a, uh, and as a supervisor that I would be able to get that process moving, you know, so they could uh, you know, move cases forward, get them indicted, you know. I could imagine that the uh, computer evidence you're talking about is from a variety of cases and violations throughout the office. Correct. I think it was about 150 cases in the backlog. So were you successful? By the time you left, were you able to bring that backlog down uh, a little? Yes, I was. And, I, you know, we focused on the priority cases, on the main cases. So, yes, I was able to, to bring that down. So when did, uh, when did you retire? I retired in September of 2003. And what have you been doing since? Well, uh, after following my uh, retirement from the Bureau, uh, I went to work for Ernst & Young, one of the big four accounting firms in their corporate security uh, office. And I did that for a year and three months. And after that, I, I decided to go on my own with another colleague, another retired colleague, and uh, you know, former consultant business, you know, uh, focusing on on my expertise, you know, financial crimes, uh, fraud type investigations. I obtained my uh, certification from the ACFE as a certified fraud examiner. So I did that from 2005 until 2012. And in 2012, 
I had an opportunity to go work for Deloitte, another big four accounting firm in Colombia, in Bogota, Colombia. Oh. Um, a, co- a colleague of mine, former you know FBI, who was working for Deloitte, asked me if I would help him because he knew that I knew Colombia, he knew my expertise, and they were trying to develop their forensic and dispute practice, you know, basically you know investigations. So I agreed to do that for two years. So I did that uh, through early 2015. And after that, I came back and I'm, again, running my own business as a consultant, uh, you know, private investigator, but focusing on international investigations. So I do that. I do some travel to South America on client cases. All my career with the Bureau and now post the Bureau is, is uh, being able to have that knowledge of working hand in hand with uh, attorneys, whether it be prosecutors or whether it be, uh, you know, civil attorneys, which is what I'm doing now. Well, I'm sure they uh, can keep you very, very busy on that. My expertise in accounting was very helpful to me in being successful in this corruption investigation, uh, just because I, I always had that idea that we need to focus not just on the actual criminal act of being corrupt and allowing drugs to come across, but also the going after this subjects and hurting them where, where it counts, basically taking their illicit assets away, being able to, uh, uh, you know, to go after the assets and, you know, get forfeiture of those assets back to the government. Excellent. And I guess also it acts as a, as a deterrent for others, you know, to see, you know, if, if, you, if you do this activity for the purpose of greed and getting money, at the end, not only will you end up in jail, but you're not going to have the money either because uh, the government is going to make sure you forfeit any type of uh, you know, illegal gain that you received from illegal activity. Correct. Criminal forfeiture and civil forfeiture was a very important part of our success with this you know, investigation that we've been talking about. And that's the end of the show. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, in this episode's show notes, you'll see pictures of Harry and those briefcases full of $20 bills worth $1.2 million. And there's also links to newspaper articles about this case. Harry's case occurred before 9-11. As you recall, during the episode, Harry and I kind of wondered out loud what was going on with the task force post 9-11. Well, I had an opportunity to reach out and speak to a retired supervisor at the task force, and he tells me that the role of the task force certainly did change post-9-11. Now stopping corrupt inspectors was even more crucial. If they looked the other way, more than just illegal drugs and guns could be brought across the border. And when we talk about illegal aliens, it is absolutely necessary for us to know exactly who is coming across our borders. The role of task force members is now to look for a nexus to terrorism. And protecting our borders and homeland security is now a major focus of the Southwest Border Task Force. The illegal trafficking of guns, drugs, and contraband is still a goal, but the safety and protection of the American people is paramount for the task force. This week, I don't have a crime fiction recommendation, but I'm going to be going on vacation soon, so I will have a chance to 
really stock up on some good books. As a matter of fact, if you have a suggestion for me, email it to me. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.